Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure for me to be here today with you. My name is Wally Mills, and to those who are here in the auditorium and to those who are watching online, I would like to introduce myself. Jeff has asked me to speak this morning in the second week of this series called Work as Worship. And uh, so as a way of introducing myself, I thought I would tell you briefly about my work experiences. Uh, I've worked in three very different fields. Or, uh, my father was a farmer in southern Saskatchewan, so I worked in that field and that field and that field. I'm, I'm not being too serious about that. But, um, but I have worked in very different work situations. The farm I grew up on was a mixed farm, which meant it had fields of grain and it had a multitude of different animals, cows and horses and pigs and chickens, just to name a few. As you can imagine, I had a job to do as soon as I could contribute, which started fairly young. I learned a good work ethic on the farm. After high school, I was ready for a career move, though, and I traded in my farm clothes for a suit and a tie. I began to work in a bank, and you wore a suit and a tie in those days. I enjoyed my work, and I was happy to receive a regular paycheck. A few years later, I was transferred in the bank to Brandon, Manitoba. I didn't know it at the time, but God was in it all. My life was, my Christian life was stalled. My life lacked real purpose. And I was in a low spot and I was ready to re-examine my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believed that God had led me that particular, at that particular time to a great church. The influence of that church in my life was so significant that one year later, I resigned from the bank and I entered Bible college. Four months after I graduated, I was called to pastor my first church. Two months after that, my wife Anita and I were married. With the exception of one further year of seminary training, we have served in pastoral ministry together in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Newmarket, Guelph, and Kingston, Ontario for 45 years. You didn't hear, did you hear that? <laughs> you weren't supposed to hear that. Since retiring, we have also served in a number of churches and in interim basis. Anita and I have been blessed with two children, a son and a daughter, both of whom are married, and we now have five grandchildren. And for the fat past five years, we feel blessed to call Harbor our church home. Amen. But even though I've worked primarily in the church most of my adult life, I've come to realize that our Christian faith, in order for it to make an impact, must be passionately articulated and intentionally lived out in the marketplace. That includes the financial institutions, the university, the hospital, the construction site, in the dentist chair, in the neighborhoods, and in our homes. And so I'm excited about this series, and I consider it a privilege to share with you what God's Word might have to teach us 
particularly about our attitudes within the workplace. So let's think about this. Have you seen the bumper sticker that says, I'm in no hurry, I'm on my way to work. Or another one, another suggested this way, the best thing about my job is that my chair swivels. Or perhaps you can identify with the person who keeps a large calendar on their desk in the office and they use a big red marker each day to cross off the days until their next vacation. If you feel that way, you're not alone. Because surveys indicate that 7 out of 10 people are unhappy with their jobs and they dread going to work. That's why the attitude of a lot of people generally is TGIF. Thank goodness. Or as some would say, thank God. It's Friday. It's not a joy, it's a job. This attitude towards work is unfortunate since over the course of a person's lifetime, they will spend approximately 40% of their time in the workplace. No matter what your job is and how many times you change your job, if you work full-time over the course of 50 years, the biggest single block of your life is going to be spent on the job. And our time at work usually comprises the prime minutes and hours of each of our days. As Liam said last week, the fact is you will spend more time working and commuting to and from work and thinking about work than anything else in your life. And since work is such a big part of our existence, how can we learn to use it constructively and intentionally for God and for his kingdom? How can we leverage, leverage these important minutes and hours in an expression of worship? Paul declares our purpose very clearly in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Paul says it this way. He says, our purpose in life is this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What could be more ordinary or mundane than eating and drinking and working? All of life should be lived under the banner of the glory of God. Our God-centered thinking should permeate every area of our life. How we nourish our bodies, how we work and play and speak and spend our money and serve others. And today, whether you love your job or you hate it, the Bible has a great deal to say about your attitude, how our attitudes can improve in the workplace. Charles Swindoll wrote a wonderful paragraph about attitude in his book called The Strengthening Your Grip. And he said this, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. He said, attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, and skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. This remarkable thing 
The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding our attitude that we will embrace for that particular day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have. And that is our attitude. He said, I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me. And 90% how I react to it. And so it is. We are in charge of our attitudes. And for some reason, we have lost the importance of our attitude in our work. We've lost the idea of coming in and doing a good job and giving 100% to what God gives us to do. In our society, we've lost the idea that work is a noble pursuit, as we were reminded last week. It's far too easy to buy into the idea that work is what you do so that you can grab your paycheck and live it up on the weekend. I appreciated Liam's message last week, reminding us that God, the, the work that God's given is, is good. And because of the gospel and our hearts being renewed, now we are God's workmanship and God has given us something to do and it has value and dignity and we can make a conscious choice to do good work for his glory. So if you have your Bible with you or you'd like to turn on your phone to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, we're going to read that in just a, in a minute. But let me briefly tell you about the background of this particular passage. Throughout church history, there have been both individuals and groups of Christians that have become consumed with prophecy and the Lord's return. And apparently that was true of some of the believers in Thessalonica. And they had become overexcited about the coming of Jesus. And they believed that it could occur almost immediately. And they began to act irresponsibly. Some decided that they should quit their jobs and spend their time proclaiming the end of the world and waiting on the hilltops for his return. And in the meantime, if they had need of food or the essentials of life, well, other Christians were just expected to step up to the plate and help them out. And in their misguided enthusiasm, these people became a nuisance and a burden on the Christian community. There was another group of people called the Greeks who looked down on manual labor. And it's to these two particular things that Paul gives us these words in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. And Paul gives us some very practical instruction in this, in this passage to these two groups of people. And it's going to be on the side screens, and here's what it says. Now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul's primary command or primary message is a command. 
for all of us to demonstrate loving concern for other people. By nature, we struggle with demonstrating true love. Self-love or selfishness is the main hindrance to us loving others. Our basic approach to life is not, what can I give? But rather, what can I get out of this? And people treat work the same way. We want to be loved, but we don't want to have to put ourselves out in order to love. We see this in marriages, in families, in neighborhoods, in churches, and definitely in the workplace. So notice verse 9, it says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. I was a little surprised by this statement when I read it over and studied it about brotherly love. Paul says, you really don't need me to say anything about it, about that subject. But you've probably concluded that I'm going to keep on talking for the next 20 minutes on something he, didn't, he said wasn't necessary to talk about. And you'd be right. Talking about something Paul said wasn't really necessary. And so Paul said further, he said, uh, because you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And that's all the example that you and I need. And I can't improve on that. But let me review the statement with you just for a few moments. God himself is our model. God himself is our example, as you'll see on the screen. The word translated taught by God appears nowhere else in the New Testament than right here. And it speaks not of a lesson that is learned in a classroom, but a truth that is learned through a relationship. We love because God is love. It's a family trait. And that's why Paul doesn't have to teach it. We love each other because God has loved us. And when we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus to save us and free us from our selfish, sinful ways, God the Holy Spirit comes and takes up permanent residence in us. And Romans 5 says that he pours his love into us, God's love. And God's, and by virtue of that, God's presence and his permanent Love permeates us with a love that should be very natural for us to express. By the way, have you, by the way of illustration, have you ever noticed that animals do instinctively what is necessary to keep them alive and safe? Fish do not need to take swimming lessons to learn how to swim. Birds by nature put out their wings and they flap them in order to fly. And Eden and I walk as often as we can. And our favorite place to walk is along the Niagara Parkway down near the Brockman Monument. Yes, that's right. We drive to go walking. <laughs> that <clears throat> on our walks we have seen turkey vultures, we have seen black vultures. And this fall and winter, there are a pair of bald eagles that have made that area their home. And we love to watch these birds. 
that have these wide wingspans and they catch the wind currents in just the right way and they just float through the air. They soar because God put it in their nature to soar. And because a Christian has God's nature within him, he or she ought to love because God is love. But more than that, every person, every believer has personally tasted that God is love. More than anything else or anywhere else, we see God's amazing love demonstrated on the cross. That first verse that we, ever, we learned a long time ago, John 3.16 says it so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God gave us two great commandments. The first one is to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another even as he had loved them. And then he added, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, when unchurched people are asked, what they want in a church, the answer is nearly always the same. They look for a caring church, not just a relevant church or a church with plenty of good programs for their kids, not just a church where the Bible is clearly taught, as good as all those things are. That doesn't touch the heart cry of this generation for a place where they can go and be deeply loved. And God is our example. God loves us in an incredible way. And so love isn't optional. Genuine love for one another should be the mark of every follower of Jesus. But what is love? And how can we explain it and define it? Again, you don't need me to teach you. Paul has already given us a thorough understanding of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's defined, and it's going to be on the screen in a few moments. But one practical exercise you can work on is to write out 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, on an index card. Do you know, that when, we, do you know when we hear those verses read more often than not? They're read at nearly every wedding. But in 1 Corinthians 13... There is no suggestion that these words are relegated solely for brides and grooms who are about to embark on life together. Although these verses are definitely applicable in those situations, these words were written to believers like you and me. Here, believers are given instruction about how to live and work and relate to other people. And it doesn't matter that we are going to encounter obnoxious people or mean-spirited people or imperfect people. Imperfect people. Listen, perfect people don't exist. Everybody knows that their marriage partner 
is not perfect. Their children are not perfect. Their parent, the parents of those children are not perfect. Their friends are not perfect. But God calls us to love imperfect people. And it shouldn't surprise us because God loves imperfect people even more than we do. We are called to love imperfect people. And if you're serious about loving others, may I recommend that you write out this list from 1 Corinthians 13 and then read over that list every morning until those words begin to govern all of your interactions and relationships with the imperfect people you encounter that that day. Begin applying these praises to all the people you work with and have contact with. And yes, ask yourself the hard questions about each quality. And they're on the screen. The first one is love is patient. Would my spouse or my coworkers describe me as a patient per- person? Do I have a short fuse? How about love is kind? Am I kind and gracious toward others? especially when they fall short of my expectations. Love is not envious. Am I competing with others? Love is not, does not boast. It is not proud. Am I self-focused, always trying to impress others with my achievements and my opinions? Love is not rude. Am I rude? Do I often interrupt others? Am I considerate of the feelings And the points of view of others? Love is not self-seeking. Am I selfish? Do I think about others' needs ahead of my own? The next slide has the rest of the list. Love is not easily angered. Am I easily offended? Do I get angry when people don't do what I want them to do? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do I keep score? Do I hold grudges? Am I quick to forgive? This kind of forgiveness is a unique Christian virtue. Others may forgive, but only Christians have such a solid basis for forgiveness. As C.S. Lewis writes, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Am I glad when others fail because it makes me look good? Am I truly happy when I hear of other successes and promotions when I'm overlooked? Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Do I bear with people in their immaturity and their shortcomings or do I always correct them? And am I suspicious of others? Do I write people off? Do I believe that God can actually work in that person's heart and change them? And even if others who know us might say that we're doing fairly well well at loving others, there's always room for improvement because our standard is, our model is, our example is God. I think that the Christians in Thessalonica were probably a lot like the people of Harbor. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul thanks God for these believers. And this is what he says, We continually, we always remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. 
But then over here in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Paul commends the Christians for the love they have shown throughout Macedonia. And then this next phrase is, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Paul writes, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. So love is an action that always requires improvement and practice. I summarize it this way. Improvement is required. Because love can always be improved. Paul urged the Thessalonians Thessalonians to express their love in even more ways, more and more ways to more and more people. In other words, we never reach the point where we can say, okay, I've got this love thing down. Now I can concentrate on something else. Since Christ's perfect example is our standard, we always have room to grow. We can always love our spouse more, love our children more, love other Christians more, love our neighbors more, love our boss or supervisor more, more our co-workers more. This isn't automatic. If we're not intentionally and deliberately thinking about improving the quality of our love, chances are we're not going to succeed. I've always enjoyed sports. But everyone knows that in order to improve, you have to practice. My present sport is the highly intense, hard-hitting, fast-paced game called curling. And believe it or not, curling is a game that requires regular practice in order to improve. So I watch the curling pros on TV and learn the proper techniques. And I read about the exercises I should do in order to improve. Then I put the book away. And then I go and begin to play. And I'm usually frustrated by the outcome. I haven't practiced. So what is true about sports can be true of every other worthy endeavor is you have to practice. You have to repeat certain exercises over and over again in order to reach a desired outcome. The same is true of love. Do you ever think about practicing love? I've given you one exercise in 1 Corinthians 13. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that when you want to improve or excel at loving others, you have to practice but you don't do it alone. There's a verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and following. It says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. And then in the last two verses of this passage, Paul gives us some very practical instruction about living out a life of love, particularly in the work environment. And he talks about our ambition and that our <clears throat> God's love is displayed even in our ambition. And you'll see that on the screen as well. God makes, says, or pardon me, Paul says, make it your ambition. He could have said, make this your purpose statement of life. It's not, <clears throat> he says, your ambition is something that touches every area of life. It touches your work habits, your attitude, your relationships. Your relationships. 
And what Paul is saying is, what is a worthy goal for your life and for your work? And what he says is not exactly what I would have expected in a purpose statement. Because the first thing he says, he encourages us to do is, with respect to our ambition, lead a quiet life. This is the answer to the problem of restlessness. Paul says to live quietly. We need this because our ambition tends to be to make a big splash, make a name for ourselves, to get ahead, to rise above the crowd. Eugene Peterson Peterson translates this phrase with two words, just stay calm. And those words fit in our workaholic age. We live in hurried times with little sense of stillness and rest. We work harder to achieve less. We are a generation of hyperactive people. And our, our motto is, go big or go home. And we measure our success by how much we accomplish each day. No wonder we're restless and edgy and nervous and easily distracted. Paul says we should be quiet rather than anxious. Instead of constantly being upset with the circumstances of life, we should be people who trust God is in control. He loves us. It's illustrated by that sense of a child sound asleep in the arms of their father during a storm because they know their father will protect them. God wants us to impact our society with an act of love and a quietness of heart that comes from resting in the character of the greatness of God and to rest in the fact that God's love never fails. We're to be steady, not out of control. Because there was one phrase I didn't include in that list of 1 Corinthians 13, and it's going to be on the screen. Love never fails. Because God never fails. The second thing we're to strive for is something called minding your own business. How often have you wanted to say that to somebody? When people ask nosy questions, when they butt into our private conversations, and when they give unsolicited advice, we would like to say, mind your own business. But that's not quite it what Paul had in mind. Paul is encouraging us to focus our energies on what God has called us to do and to do it conscientiously, to do it energetically and enthusiastically and with singleness of purpose. Nothing shows our attitude at work more than rolling up our sleeves and being serious about what we do. Ephesians 6 verse 7 says, serve wholeheartedly as if serving the boss? No, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Notice this is the opposite of working half-heartedly. This is the opposite of doing your work while dreaming of finding another job. Small practical acts show God's love on display in the workplace. And it may not seem like a big deal, but it's making, it'll make a difference. If we keep working at loving each other and working hard to be the people who are focusing on doing what we can and who give our best in our jobs, Paul tells us what will happen. He said, we will win the respect of people who are not yet believers because love never fails. Love never fails in the home. Love never fails 
in the church. Love never fails in the workplace. We will win the respect of others who are not yet believers. Think about the people you respect the most. Who is it you admire? Who is it that you admire? And why do we admire them? I would suggest that for most of us, we admire and respect the people who are just like those that Paul's just described. They are the people who genuinely care, who aren't pushy and nosy. They are steady and consistent and dependable. Most of these people will fly under the wet radar of life. They don't make a lot of noise when they enter a room, but their impact is unmistakable. People are drawn to them, not so much because of their talk, but because of their character. So when you get up each morning, would you ask God to help you to work for others as if working for God? And to love others because love never fails? How we work is as crucial as how we pray. I don't think I've overstated that. There's no greater testimony than the Christian mechanic at the bench, the Christian teacher in the classroom, the Christian secretary at their desk, the Christian nurse in the hospital, or the Christian accountant keeping the books, because love never fails. This is true Christianity in shoe leather. Most of us don't see our daily work as a way to worship God, but it is. And what you do on Monday is just as sacred in the eyes of the Lord as what you do in church on Sunday. Amen. You know, history is in many ways a story of influence. Everyone influences somebody. Sociologists tell us that even the most introverted, shy individual will influence 10,000 people during his or her lifetime. We all influence one another in all sorts of ways. From what we have for lunch, to what movies to watch, to more important matters of truth and ethics in our relationship with God. My life has been influenced by so many people, profoundly by my wife, my parents, my teachers, my friends, my, my family. And just as I have, influ I have influenced, I've been influenced by others, inevitably what I do and what I say will have an influence on others for good or for ill. As the African proverb puts it, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito. But think about this. One person, one loving person can stop a great injustice. One loving person can be a voice for truth. One person's kindness can save a life. One person's acts of love can affect someone for eternity. Each matters. I read this statement this week. Great, great, great occasions for serving God seldom come, but little opportunities surround us daily. So let's take up the challenge. Because love 
never fails. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your amazing love demonstrated at the cross for us. We thank you for the power of your love in our own hearts, drawing us to yourself. We also thank you for the power of your influence in our lives. And we want to, above everything else, live for your glory. Help us, O oh God, to make a difference in the environments where you place us. Help us to cherish and love the people around us. We want to express your love as we should more and more to more people. So use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my friends, as you go to your homes and into your neighborhoods and into your workplaces, let's take up the challenge. Harbor, we are sent. Amen. God bless you.